It's May 9th. It's 2018. Good things are happening at Life Changing Ministries. I don't know how many of you have been praying for JR, but many of us met JR back somewhere around 2009 at AIM facility. JR is faithful to the Lord, and no one knows for sure, but their ship capsized, and uh, we have not received word that JR has been rescued. So it looks as if one of our brothers has beat us to the king. That's not sad. Don't let, you, don't, don't let your thoughts turn toward sadness. That is the goal of the Christian life. Amen. We should all be so lucky. One of these days you will hear that we have died. Don't you believe it? We will have never been more alive. Amen. We will have laid aside this clay tenement and gone up higher. Saints, the goal of the Christian faith is to be with Jesus, to be like Jesus, and to be resurrected in Him. In the last few days, we've had a chance to visit with new life in Victoria. They are setting the world on fire down there, excited, full of faith, just coming back from visiting Buddy in Peru with Ichad for Peru Ministries. This morning, I heard from the church in Romania. They have settled on a name. They have appointed pastors and elders and are just absolutely experiencing revival. Tomorrow morning at 7 o'clock, we leave to go see Remnant Ministries in Dallas, Texas with Brother Mike Hutchinson. We expect good things there. Saturday, we will be at the House of Manna, the House of the Bread of Heaven in Mexico with Mario Salinas, Wendy's father. We are blessed to be connected to serious saints around the world. You are not alone. Not only are you not alone, this fellowship is making us stronger. Tuesday, I will leave to go see Submission Ministries in Washington, D.C. And they are building a school to send people to the nations. All of this born out of a living room church that invited its neighbors on the very first Saturday, both who laughed in our faces. You have no idea how powerful what is inside you is. Jesus Christ changed the world with 12 scared Jewish boys that decided to trust their king. What he will do with the men and women in this room, well, it's immeasurably more than we could ask for or imagine. Somebody give glory to God. Our topic tonight is a fellowship offering. This is because after being gone for an extended period of time, I experienced exactly what our brother is saying from Indonesia. Brent walked in and I felt the fellowship of the Spirit. We know what it is now to have suffered loss for the kingdom and considered it gain. His wife has lost an eye for Jesus Christ but did not stop ministering for a single day, and our God is able to put that eye back in the name of Jesus. The kind of saints that you're associated with ought to inspire you. Saints such as these, well, the king is enthroned on our shoulders. While I arrived last Wednesday, 
Somewhere between 7 and 9 o'clock, Pastor Wade was preaching what I understand was one of his finest messages yet. It was called Too Close for Comfort. Did y'all enjoy that? We had not coordinated. We had not talked about it. And I had not listened to the message. And yet, I understand that the text was 2 Corinthians 1, 3 through 4. And I want to read that to you now. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all of our troubles. Somebody say, all. All. So that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves have received from God. Oh, my goodness. We are not going to rob ourselves of the very hardship that allows God to comfort us. And when we receive comfort, we are going to give comfort. It's good to avoid these creature comforts that are stealing from us so that we will have divine power to demolish strongholds. Can you say amen to that? Do you feel his divine power in this room tonight? If you're a guest here tonight, I'm asking you not to judge us by our appearance. I'm not as pretty as Matthew. It gives me something left to aspire to. The Bible says, dark am I yet lovely, and I'm working on it. Curtis is all the way there. Amen, Mary? You got your mahogany king back there. When I look out here, I see miracles everywhere. We got babies that we weren't supposed to have. We have healed children that nobody thought would be healed. There are spouse. When, when Brent mentioned that Cody got married, I raised Cody. You have no idea what a miracle that is. We comfort others with the comfort we ourselves have received. This means that we can sit with people and we can tell them, I know from experience God will come through. And the man with the experience is not at the mercy of the man who merely has an argument. We can know that our God is with us. If you're a guest here today, we're saying, don't you dare judge us by the humble state of our building. You judge us by one criteria. You either feel the presence of God in this room or you don't. And if we belong to him and you belong to him, then you ought to love us. Even if you disagree with us, because we're sure going to love you. Even if we disagree on something. At my first opportunity in the pulpit, this last Sunday was only the fifth time that I preached a solo message this year. You know how strange that is after founding a ministry? But it's a testament to the work of Jesus Christ in this ministry. It doesn't rest on the shoulders of one, two, or three men. There are 25 men in here that could carry the load of the ministry because Jesus Christ is forming the hearts and minds of this church. In my fifth message for the year, I got a chance to share with you about drowning in His goodness. That text came from John seven thirty-seven. I want to read it to you. We're going somewhere with this idea. On the last and the greatest day of the feast, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. For whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from within him. I suggested to you that what we have always read as a scripture about the infilling of the Holy Ghost might be more accurately described as a scripture about the outflowing of the Holy Ghost. That the reason that God puts his divine presence inside of us is so that we can then share that image, that presence, that 
kingdom power and all-surpassing love with the world around us. The blessing of the Christian life is the outflow of the Spirit. And the reason that you are filled is so that you can pour out. Amen? Amen. Do you want to pour out? Then we're going to get so full of Him that we are drowning in His goodness tonight. Monday night, we had a chance to look at Judges 9 together. This is my favorite Bible study that we do. How many of you enjoy foundations? This hand-raising thing's new. How many of you enjoy foundations? In Judges 9, we looked at three different kinds of trees. We saw an olive tree, a fig tree, and a vine represented by a tree. And those three refused to sacrifice. They would not give up the work product of their life. They would not lay it down for the good of Israel. And because of that, a thorn bush that is representing sin reigned over the people. And selfishness was run amok. The point of the study that evening was that the world is to be filled with righteousness, not selfishness. It's to be filled with the anointing of God, with the fruit of God, with the overflow of the Spirit. That was what we were looking at as I prepared for this evening. It became special to me because I was sitting next to Brent Vincent and I was watching the way in which he has poured out and he's rejoicing in what he's been able to suffer for the gospel. And I realized that the man that we ordained, that we saw as an example of Christ, has become more like Christ. That he's not rested on his laurels. In fact, Christ is being formed in him. He has not backed up, not shut up, not let up, but he has stood up and he has spoken up and lives are being changed. Somebody say amen. Amen. I believe that the overwhelming witness of the Spirit is causing us to look at a fellowship offering tonight. I want to begin back in 2 Corinthians 1, but I want to pick up in the 5th verse. And as we do, I'm going to draw your attention to a special relationship that this verse highlights. Say there when you're there. For just as the sufferings of Christ overflow into our lives. Somebody say just as. For just as the sufferings of Christ flow over into our lives, so also through Christ our comfort overflows. If we are distressed, it is for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which produces in you patient endurance of the same sufferings we suffer. Do you get the impression that life was hard in the first century? Do you get the impression that the church needed comfort in the midst of their sufferings? And our hope for you is firm because we know that just as, say just as, you share in our sufferings, so also you share in our comfort. I want to show you one picture. It's our only sermon aid for the evening, and it's about the words just as. Do we have a Greek expert in the house tonight? Amen. Then the way that I say this is the perfect way to say it. This is kathos. (laughs) Kathos is a Greek conjunction. And here in this verse, it's translated just as. But it can be in as much. It can also be in the same manner of. It has to do 
with a proportion of things that are of equal value. In other words, the amount of comfort you receive is going to be directly proportional to the amount of suffering that you go through. You can clearly see that there's a direct correlation between suffering that you experience and comfort that you receive. Well, similarly, tonight, we're going to examine the relationship between your level of sacrifice and your level of fellowship. Because the more you sacrifice, the sweeter your fellowship will become. The more you fellowship, the more you will want to sacrifice. There is a special bonding that happens in the body of Christ when we share in the work of Christ. Brent and I loved each other before he left. But he has now been doing the same kind of work that we've been doing and our fellowship is growing. How many of you have lived long enough to see a teenager leave your home? You can raise your hand or speak aloud. How about that? When your teenagers leave, there is one kind of fellowship. But when they come back with families of their own, there is an entirely different kind of fellowship. When they leave, they can't help but think about the ways they would do things differently. They can't help but think about the vision that they have. But when they come back, they're thankful for what you share and what you gave each other. There is a kind of fellowship that happens in suffering that I think is beautiful. Now, the Tanakh is an, an acronym that means Torah, Navim, and Ketuvim. So where do you think our message will start this evening? In the Torah, the law of God that is supposed to form our hearts. What's it form? In the Torah, we find the forming of the nation Israel. In the forming of the nation Israel, God reveals his heart to them. In Deuteronomy 5, in verse 29, he says, Oh, that their hearts would be inclined to follow me. The reason that we're starting in the Torah is you're about to get a glimpse into God's heart and what yours has to be formed into. Do you want Jesus to form your heart tonight? Then this is where we'll start. It's Exodus 20. In verse 24, say there when you were there. Man, two, three of you are fast. The rest of you say there when you're there. Make an altar. You know what's interesting about that? We have just received the law from heaven. An entire nation has heard the voice of God. We literally have just received 10 commandments from on high with another 603 to follow. And God is already talking about an altar. It's almost as if when he shows us his heart, he knows we won't live up to it. Come on, somebody, that's got to be good news for you. And the first thing that he starts to talk about in Exodus 20, 24 is an altar that you can go to to get your heart right and like his. Most of the Christian walk is looking at the attributes of God and looking at your life soberly. And when you do that, you see a distance between the two. The Ruach HaKodesh, the spirit of holiness, comes upon you for the purpose of helping you transform into what God says you are. So if you're not there yet, I love the way Brother Carlos said it in his testimony. He said, I'm not sinless yet. If you're not there yet, the Holy Spirit will help you close that gap tonight. Do you want to close the gap between you and the Lord tonight? 
Man, that's a fellowship. And you're sitting next to people who want to do the same thing. Make an altar of earth for me and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings. In general, burnt offerings were for the purpose of expiating sin. They were for the purpose of something innocent dying so that you might live, so that you would understand the cost of sin and want to turn away from sin. But there's another kind of offering that is placed on this altar. Make an altar of earth for me and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. The Bible doesn't just show you how to deal with your sin. It also shows you how to draw near to God. In Hebrew, this is to korban. We have a God who wants you to draw near to his presence. And if you want to fellowship with him, there has to be a sacrifice. We're happy to say that Jesus has made every sacrifice for us, but this is simply biblically not true. His sacrifice is sufficient to put you in right order with God. It covers every sin. And yet, to fellowship with Him, to be in step with His Spirit, there is an unending series of sacrifice. In fact, the call of the Gospel in Matthew 16, 24 is, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself. He must take up his cross And he must follow me. This is one sacrifice right after another. Paul said, I die daily so that he could be in fellowship with the Lord. And it's not just the Lord. It's also with your brothers. How many of you have ever shared a wonderful afternoon at Charlie and Joellen Brown's house? Yeah, look around the room. Man, is that house full of hospitality? Full of life? If you want to pray with Charlie, you have to get up at four in the morning. There's a sacrifice in that. But there's also a blessing in it, isn't there? Every time you want to go further in fellowship, it will require of you to give something of yourself. You'll have to set aside something else that you wanted to do for the benefit of fellowship. Man, Jesus set aside the very idea of equality with God to bring you into fellowship with Him. We have to set things aside to be able to fellowship with each other. When you have something that you want to do and your heart is set on doing that and you look and see an opportunity to let the Spirit flow out of you and into someone else's life and to have the Spirit flow out of them and into your life, it will always cost you something a movie that you wanted to go see, an extra hour of sleep that you thought you should have, something about it will cause a price to be attached to that fellowship. I'm here to tell you that that fellowship is worth it. It's worth whatever the cost. It's worth the dirty dishes. It's worth the house crowded with people. It's worth carting your kids across town, putting them in car seats. All the things that we do to fellowship Because the fellowship is life. Somebody say amen. Amen. The first altar described is after giving the law. And it deals with two specific things. How to deal with your sin. And how to fellowship with both God and man. The two greatest needs of all mankind. Are help in dealing with our own sin. And help in restoring fellowship with others. 
Is there anyone in here like me that if you mention a certain name, somebody perhaps in your family or in your past, it's painful. You'd rather not have to think about it. And you know that God can restore the fellowship, but you just don't know how. Can I tell you, it'll always involve sacrifice. It'll cause you to have to sacrifice your pride. It'll cause you to have to sacrifice your time. You may even have to sacrifice whatever grievance you have. But the fellowship is always worth the sacrifice as long as the fellowship is holy and not unholy. True fellowship always requires sacrifice and it is not real fellowship without it. Have you ever hung out with people and you realize that they were just networking? They're name dropping. They're building their business. They are there for some ulterior motive. They're not giving of themselves. And so you don't experience real sacrifice. You don't experience real fellowship without real sacrifice. We're going to examine that topic. Go with me to 2 Samuel 15 and verse 19. Say there when you get there. Man, I'm going to start telling you electronic Bibles don't count. But you know what? The harder it is for me to read, the more I'm using electronic Bibles. So my preaching is changing a little through the years. I have the most beautiful notes that I cannot read in so many books of the Bible. Second Samuel 15 and verse 19. The king said to Ittai the Gittite. Why should you come along with us? Go back and stay with King Absalom. You are a foreigner, an exile from your homeland. You came only yesterday, and today shall I make you wander about with us? When I do not know where I'm going, go back and take your countrymen. May kindness and faithfulness be with you. Before I read his response... Do you get the impression that David was worried that this fellowship would cost Ittai too much? Have you ever sacrificed fellowship because you thought it might cost too much? Have you denied somebody else the opportunity to join you in fellowship because you were worried about what it would cost them? I've been shocked about the level of sacrifice in this ministry. It's beautiful. I can show up in a city 20 hours away and if I didn't tell you do not come, when I get up to preach, I look out and there are people that drove all the way through the night to be present there. Sometimes when we try to avoid sacrifice, we miss the sweetest kinds of fellowship. The fullest expression of somebody's love to you that was unexpected. Your fullest expression of love to them that is surprising or astonishing to them. Fellowship always comes with sacrifice. I find Ittai's response astonishing and altogether lovely. But Ittai replied to the king, As surely as the Lord lives, and as my Lord the king lives, wherever my Lord the king may be, whether it means life or death, there your servant will be. Think about the sacrifice involved in Ittai's response. By David's own admission, he becomes an exile. He gave up his homeland. He became a wanderer. David had no idea where they were going, like the son of man who didn't know where he would lay his head. He risked his life and his family's life. Ittai has a family in this chapter. 
There are men that are following Ittai and they are risking their lives and their families' lives. And why? Because Ittai believes David is called of God. He loves David and he loves David's God. This is a beautiful example of what it means to be a Gentile grafted in into the royal family of faith. We have decided that we love the king. And no sacrifice is too great to fellowship with our king. I feel the same way about the king's subjects. Spending time with JJ is worth giving up whatever else I wanted to do. Spending time with Larissa is worth giving up whatever else I had on the schedule. Fellowship is sweeter the greater the sacrifice involved. Now, many of us at some point in our life have become well acquainted with Proverbs 17, 17. You might even be able to quote it. A friend loves at all times. And a brother is born for adversity. There's this saying in Turkey. I said, we are brothers. They said, no, brothers are where all of your problems come from. We're more than that. Brothers are truthfully sometimes a problem. But your brother is supposed to be the one that no sacrifice is too great. Because you're flesh and blood. The Bible here says that a brother is born for, or it's possible to read it as in, adversity. Consider Ittai with this. Ittai loved David when it was not convenient. In other words, at all times. He sacrificed for their friendship in the most extreme ways. Was he just a friend? Or did he become something more? Did he become something like a brother to David? Go to 2 Samuel 18 and verse 2. Say, there when you were there. David sent the troops out, a third under the command of Joab, a third under Joab's brother Abishai, son of Zeruah, and a third under Ittai the Gittite. The king told the troops, I myself will surely march out with you. How many of you want to be there on that day with Jesus? How many of you want to ride with the armies of the Lord? To go to battle with King David. To go to battle with King David while he's still in exile and he hasn't yet received the kingdom, but as the result of your efforts, the kingdom will be handed over to him. What an honor this is. How many thirds are there in a, in a package of, of thirds? <laughs> One-third with Joab. One-third with Abishai. One-third with Ittai. Friends, that's all there is. All the armies of Israel were under the control of three men. Not only was Ittai a foreigner, Ittai was a Philistine. Not only was he a Philistine, he was from Gath. That's the home of Goliath. We can't... I mean, to get there, you got to start somewhere else. You can't even get there from here. Gath. We're talking about not just foreigners, enemies. Not just enemies, the home of the biggest enemies there had ever been. How did he make it to commanding a third of David's armies? It was a sacrifice that was expressed in love, loyalty, in faithfulness. And friends, love 
Love is not love if there's no sacrifice in it. Loyalty? How could you test loyalty if there is no sacrifice in it? Faithfulness. Faithfulness is not a moment where you feel excited. Faithfulness is expressed over time when you are committed to the ideal as if it were present in your hand, even though it's not. How did he arrive at such a position? The men that he listed, Joab and Abishai and then Ittai. In 1 Chronicles 2, beginning in verse 13, it says this. Jesse was the father of Eliab, his firstborn. The second son was Abinadab. The third, Shimei. The fourth, Nathaniel. The fifth, Radai. The sixth, Ozim. And the seventh, David. David is the youngest of seven. Their sisters were Zeruah and Abigail. Zeruah's three sons were Abishai, Joab, and Asael. Are you beginning to put this together? Joab was the son of David's sister, and so was Abishai. She was likely much older than David because David is the youngest of Jesse's sons. This means that David was related to and grew up with Joab. Joab was his cousin, but he in truth lived much like his brother. Abishai, also his cousin, But in truth, they lived and were raised together just like brothers. Ittai the Gittite is listed with David's near relatives just like he were a brother. I say a brother because those born for or in adversity are far better than those that are born of similar stock. Have you found that to be true? Somebody that loves you and they didn't have to. Somebody that has no reason to be faithful to you, loyal to you, sacrificing to you, and they love you. That means far more than the one from whom that obligation is expected. Oh man, we have such an opportunity with the King of Kings. We were people who were not even looking for him. And yet because you were found by him, you have an opportunity to show a faith that is extraordinary. How much more to his people? How much more ought we to sacrifice for each other? How much more ought we to seek fellowship with each other? And the greater the cost, the sweeter the fellowship. Another way that the Bible says that is where there is no suffering, there can be no glory. Do you want a glorious fellowship? Do you want glorious friendships? Then we will have to sacrifice for them. And no cost is too high. Check this out in 2 Samuel 19 while we're walking through the Word together. 2 Samuel 19, verse 22. David replied, What do you and I have in common, you sons of Zeruah? (laughs) This day you have become my adversaries. Should anyone be put to death in Israel today? Do I not know that today I am king over Israel? Listen, I don't know whether you're picking this up, so I want to say it for you. David felt closer to Ittai than he did his own relatives whom he grew up with and fought next to in battle. Do you know why he felt closer? Because the sons of Zerai sometimes were loyal and sometimes weren't. But Ittai sacrificed everything to follow David. What will make the closest friendships in your life? What will cause the sweetest fellowship in your life? Tell me it's not when people show up on moving day and you didn't expect it. 
Tell me that it's not when they gave up their plans and came and helped you with yours. This is how you build covenants together. This is how we express our love to Jesus by giving up our life and taking on his. And this is how we build covenants with each other. It's not a, I have to, it's I get to join in the spirit of the Lord to build relationships that reflect the Lord. Oh man, this is a church of sacrificial fellowship. Every time I look out and I see a mama that I know has been up all night with crying children and you showed up in church, you showed up at fellowship, you showed up at Bible studies, you drug your crying sick kids along in the hopes that they would be healed. I see something sweet in that. There is a sweet fellowship associated with your sweet sacrifice. Jesus expressed this very same sentiment and he did it in so many ways. But maybe the clearest is in Mark 3, 33. Say there when you were there. If you missed it, we went from the Torah, the law, to the Nevim, that's the prophets. And then the Ketuvim, that's the writings. We saw the same concept expressed throughout the 66 books of the Older Testament. So when we get to the Brit Hadashah, the Newer Testament, we're not seeing something that is new. We're seeing something that is old put on much better footing, displayed in 3D, if you will. Mark three thirty three. Who are my mother and my brothers, he asked. Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and my mother. This verse could certainly be misused for you to separate from relatives, for you to hurt somebody's feelings. But the truth is that it's through many toils, trials, and tribulations that we enter the kingdom. And so others who are going through those toils, those trials, and those tribulations, they become to you brothers, sisters, mothers, Fathers, as long as I can remember, Miss Joe has been like a mother to me. As long as I can remember, there was nothing that Mr. Charlie would not help me with. From the day that I came into the kingdom, that has been our relationship. Does it surprise you that I spend more time with them than I do my natural parents? No, because your family are those that are doing the will of God. You have sacrifice together. You join in the sacrifice together. And that is not bad news for your natural family. Because they can also join the family of God. It's not excluding anyone. It's setting the high ground for inclusion. And it is the kingdom of God on earth. Isn't that beautiful? There's a saying that's been quite twisted in our time. We say blood is thicker than water. That usually means to us, like if we're roofing a house together, right? And somebody shows up that's related to me. And they're working for a dollar an hour more than you are. Then we say, ah, well, blood's thicker than water. And what that means to us is this person values their natural family more than anybody else. But that is actually the exact opposite of the origin of the phrase. The phrase is actually, the blood of the covenant is thicker than the water of the womb. 
It actually means those with whom you have shed blood or been under the shed blood of Christ with are closer to you. Your relationship is thicker than those who simply pass through the same water of the womb as you. Man, do we have some twisted times that we have misunderstood the most basic phrases, etymologies in our language. The truth is, is those that you sacrifice with and live with and love with and sweat with and fight with and restore with, those are the ones that you will have the sweetest fellowship with. So how do we get fellowship? You must sacrifice. Man, that's a... That's kind of, well, some would say that's a hard word. Why would we say it's a hard word? Because we don't want to sacrifice. We're scared that we won't get what we need if we sacrifice for someone else's benefit. But Philippians 2 in the fourth verse tells us so clearly, your attitude should be that of Christ Jesus, looking not only to your own interest but also the interest of others. And then through a series of steps, how he laid aside every interest that he had for you. What would happen in the relationships that you have with people in this room and outside of this room if you laid aside every interest that you have for their benefit? You know what would happen? They would see the kingdom of God. I've been talking about a group of Roman soldiers, which is unusual for me. Rome was a persecutor of Christianity. And so I have a hard time with the Roman spirit. But I did find a group of Romans that I liked very much in the third century. That was unexpected for me. In the third century, the wolf kind of put on sheep's clothing. The spirit of Rome seems to have taken over the church in many ways. Having said that, Rome started with that spirit. Romulus and Remus, the founders of Rome, two boys who were raised by a wolf, right? At least that's the legend, and the legends people tell about their nation say something about the nation. When we say George Washington skipped a silver dollar across the Potomac or chopped down a cherry tree, we don't know whether it's true, but the fact that we say it about him says something about what we idealize. Well... Rome idealized Romulus and Remus, two boys who were raised by a wolf. They become shepherds. That's kind of an interesting occupation for somebody raised by wolves, isn't it? And when they become shepherds, one of them murders the other one. It's also an interesting thing for shepherds to do. These are the founders of Rome, at least in legend. So Paul stands on the beach in Ephesus and he warns and pleads and cries with the elders. He says, you're not going to see me again. So I'm going to tell you something. From our own number, savage wolves will rise up and they will devour the flock. These were not people who wanted true fellowship. These were people who were there for an ulterior motive. They actually would destroy the fellowship of God by their behavior. And in time, that persecutor, after killing as many Christians as it possibly could, within the church, tried a new tactic. Rome, the chief enemy, the one that killed Paul, the empire that killed Peter, 
By the year 100, Domitian was killing 50,000 Christians a year in the Roman Colosseum. How many of you saw the movie Gladiator? Marcus Aurelius in that show is based on a historical figure. Marcus Aurelius dressed Christians just like sheep. He put sheepskins on them and then fed them to wild animals in the Colosseum. In the extended version of the movie that you can get on a DVD and I'm not recommending, those are deleted scenes. Hollywood took out something that was true because they thought you would find it offensive and might not buy their movie. It is offensive, isn't it? By the time you get to the 300s, Constantine, who is probably not a good man, he decided to do something different. He's like, we have been killing Christians for 300 years. Maybe we are to take a a different position. It's a waste of imperial resources to keep hunting these guys. The more we persecute them, the more they fellowship with each other and thrive and create more Christians. He's supposed to have had this vision where he sees a sign, in hoc signio vinces, under this sign you shall conquer. It was supposed to have occurred at Malvin Bridge, somewhere around the year 311 or 312. And when he sees it, he decides maybe we ought not kill Christians. After all, he thinks he's getting victory because of the Christian God. Now, I don't place any validity in that story. I certainly don't think that the man was a Christian. But the fact is undeniable that in the year 311, he issued an edict of toleration for Rome. And when he issued the edict of toleration for Rome, it was a a fundamental changing of position. What he is doing is he's saying, we will no longer kill Christianity, we will institutionalize it, which also can kill Christianity. Ask the church at Ephesus, which is the city where in 351 they named Mary the God-bearer, but... That's another story. At the same time as Constantine has risen to power, in the Eastern Empire, it's ruled by his arch nemesis, a guy named Lucinius. Now, the Eastern Empire stretched over into, obviously, the Middle East, the Western Empire, all the way into Western Europe. And there was a battle for geography, a battle for position, a battle for influence. And Lucinius did something unprecedented. He agreed... With Constantine. Now that's unusual. It's hard to get two men to agree on anything when they're in rival nations fighting for the solidarity of the one nation, but they did. So for a time, Lucinius accepts the edict of toleration and something happens. He begins to see that all over his ruled lands, there are more Christians than he thought. It turns out that many of the soldiers in the legion had converted to Christianity. It turns out that many people in positions of prominence were Christians. This scared Lucinius. So he backs away from his edict of toleration. He takes a position directly against Constantine and he is going to persecute the church. But there's a real problem. As I said, many of the Christians are in prominent positions. It turns out that one of the most successful Roman legions that there were was called Legio Fulminata. Ironically, it's the 12th Roman legion because God has a sense of humor and he likes the number 12 for his government. When Rome was losing a battle, if Legio Fulminata showed up, 
there was hope they were going to win it. When Legio Fulminata went into a particular battle because there was a storm with lightning in it and they won, they got an insignia where we get the term Legio Fulminata that means armed with lightning. That's kind of exciting, huh? Are there any dudes left in this room? Armed with lightning? The position then that Lucinius is in is he wants to purify his empire of Christians. But among his most powerful legions, there are prominent Christians. Forty of the most prominent were discovered. And so Lucinius, by way of a persecutor, asked them, asked these 40 Christians in Legio Fulminata, hey, if we give you land, if we give you positions that are even more prominent, if we give you riches, will you recant Christ? Remembering Luke twenty-two twenty-nine, the 40 Christians said the riches and wealth in store for us in the kingdom to come, yours are not worth comparing with them. If we stand by our king in his trials, he will confer upon us a kingdom that you cannot touch. So Lucinius was furious. He thought, there must be another way that I can get them to be intimidated out of this position. And he decided to torture them. As he began to advise new ways of torture, they remembered 2 Corinthians 4.17. And they said, though outwardly we waste away, our light and momentary trials are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed. We will be renewed. What do you do with a people like this? When you can't threaten them. When you can't bribe them. He began to spread false rumors about them. Many of the ideas of Luciferians, Templar Knights, all of those kind of rumors, secret societies, come from this time period in history. Their response was, we have already died in Christ and our reputation is hidden in Him. Lucinius didn't know what to do, so he confers with his chief prosecutor. He says, let's give them one more chance to recant. Take them out to the ice in a lake in eastern Turkey in a place called Sebast. As they stood near the ice, given a chance to recant again, the soldiers strengthened each other and began to recite Matthew 10.33. If we disown him before men, he will disown us before his Father in heaven. And then one of them spoke for the group and said, Many years have we lived and he has never turned his back on us. We will not disown him now. Friends, do you know what they're doing? They're experiencing mutual sacrifice, mutual suffering, and their fellowship is growing sweeter and sweeter. How close do you think these men were becoming? Lucinius ordered them stripped and beaten. The problem is, when he ordered them stripped, the soldiers heard the command, and they began taking off their own clothes. And walking out onto the ice. They said many things have we lost for Christ. And now what we gain we will gain for him eternally. Nobody took their clothes from them. They proudly gave them away as they walked out on the ice. Lucinius 
thinking that he was in danger of this going in the wrong direction. Thought that he could order warm baths to be put at the side of the lake. It's winter time. He could order feasting and tables full of feasting lakeside so that the naked soldiers on the ice would see the enticements of the world and want what the world had. After all, these are their own townsmen, the people they had been protecting. Remembering Hebrews 12, 3, they encouraged each other and said, we will not lose heart, we will not shrink back. Men, we have enjoyed each other's fellowship for many years. Let us now not lose heart and be separated from Christ for an eternity. Oh man, does this begin to inspire you? You're thinking of the sacrifice of these men and how they stood together. And in many of your hearts, the Spirit of Christ is rising saying, I want to as well. Of course, that's tested every time we're tired. It's tested when we just finished cleaning our houses. It's tested when you made other plans. How do you build sweet sacrifice or sweet fellowship? You do it through sweet sacrifice. They stood out on the ice as they held hands and encouraged one another. Their feet began to stick to the ice, frostbitten. The ice became bloody. Somebody who was overcome with a desire to warm himself, overcome with pain, breaks ranks. He walks for the shore. Can you imagine how disappointed the 39 were? Yeah, you should know because we've seen people break ranks. Demas loved the world, and so he returned to it. Hymenaeus and Philetus' teaching spread like gangrene. There are six people mentioned in 1 and 2 Timothy alone who broke ranks because they loved the world. But these 39, they were filled with the Spirit of Christ, and they began to sing, and they began to worship. And one of the soldiers guarding so that they would not exit, stripped off his clothes and walked out on the ice. He grabbed their hands to join their number and said, Brothers, will Christ accept me into eternity? The way into fellowship is sacrifice. You want people in the church to love you, and they do. You wonder why nobody has walked up to you and and invited you in. Have you walked up to them? It's been my experience that those that cannot find fellowship don't find it because they won't do anything to get it. Are you riding on the sacrifices of others for the fellowship that you now enjoy? When will it be your turn to step upon the ice? The 40 stood there and remembering Revelation 6, 11... They said, the full number of martyrs must come in. The devil will not get one more of our number. And they held each other's hands that much tighter. During a day of so much apostasy. During a time of so many who are selling out for cheap and carnal and base things. Now is the time to sacrifice for fellowship. Now is the time to hold each other's hands even tighter. 
Saint Basil lived in the 350s. He was within the lifetime of these men who made this great sacrifice. And in a homily that he delivered in 356, he said that survivors he had interviewed watched the 40 men as they dropped on the ice, none breaking the handhold they had with their brothers and said a glorious light shone above their head. That the angels were rejoicing. That heaven was fellowshipping with earth. Have you ever read Psalm 133? How blessed it is when brothers dwell together in unity. It's never easy to reach unity. It requires you to die to your desires. But at some point you don't care about fermentation or no fermentation in the communion. You care about who's standing on the ice with you. If somebody is spirit-filled, if somebody is committed to evangelism, if somebody loves the Word of God, you don't care if they're pre-trib or post-trib. You care about who is on the ice with you. Their story is still being told today. It's attested to in the Catholic Church. It's attested to in the Orthodox Church. It's attested to in the Syrian Church. It's attested to in the Coptic Church. There is nowhere in Christendom where Legio Fulminata did not set the example. So in the one association, we've co-opted it. We've begun encouraging each other. Don't you leave the ice When someone does, we say, dear God, please replace their number. We don't want our fellowship to suffer because of sin. Help us. And we hold each other's hands that much tighter. Have you ever noticed in the Word of God who it is that defeats the Antichrist? Who it is that defeats the beast and the false prophet? Let us look at the book of Revelation, the 17th chapter and the 14th verse. They will make war against the Lamb. Did you recognize that we're at war? Are we on a cruise ship or are we on a warship? Are we feasting beside the lake or are we holding hands, not dying of exposure? See, we are a people that is at war. We didn't declare it, sin declared it. But God is going to win it. They will make war against the Lamb. But the Lamb will overcome them because He is Lord of lords and King of kings. Ray Ludwigson rightly pointed out, He's not the king of scum. He's not the king of paupers. He's not the king of fools. He's the king of kings. Do you know what that makes you? then we have a lot to live up to, don't we? Man, nothing inspires kingly behavior like hanging out with kings. You'll never catch a Saudi Arabian prince diving in the dumpster back there for food. And you ought never catch a king under the king of kings diving in sinful dumpsters. We're going to have to hold each other's hands. We're going to have to help each other. Say, well, I just didn't think that I had anything to offer. You have no idea how much the person next to you needs you to hold their hands. Well, I just needed some me time. Are you sure? You know what we need? 
We need time before His throne. That's what we need. And with Him. With who? With the King of Kings. With the Lord of Lords. With who? With King Jesus. And with Him will be His called, His chosen, His faithful. Say it with me. His called, His chosen, His faithful. See, these are those that joined in the sacrifice in the battle. These are those that did not let go of the hand. These are those that fought for the fellowship. And if we will do that, we will stand with a king above all kings and watch every enemy fall beneath his feet. You have no idea how bad the person on your left and right needs you. And you need them. No one survives outside fellowship. And if you're in here tonight and you have believed the lie that says, Well, I can fellowship with the Lord anywhere. You can't fellowship with me anywhere. And you might need me. Sometimes you need somebody with some skin on them. Because as much as you love the Lord, you can't see Him at every moment, but you can see those who are made in His image on your left and right. Tell me that you would sin in the ways that you have fallen in the last couple years if the people standing next to you were there in that moment. Every time that you have ever had a serious problem, I guarantee you, you were alone. And yet you're never without the Lord. How much do you need fellowship? We need it like we need our next breath. And the whole world is screaming at us that it's not true. But they are wrong and they're on the wrong side of the lake. They don't need fellowship because they're warmed by their baths. Distracting them from their eternal fate. We need fellowship to remind us that our circumstances today do not determine our eternity. Fellowship is everything. We were chosen to sacrifice for Christ and fellowship with Him. We were also chosen to sacrifice for fellowship with the called, with the chosen, and the faithful followers of our King. This is how we overcome. I need Curtis and Mary. I need Spencer. I need Daniel. I cannot do what I am called to do without doing it with those I am called to do it with. You are not an island. That's toxic independence. The people who thought like that, they're like Cain. They go off and build their own city, but it's in opposition to God. You want to pursue righteousness along with those who are pursuing righteousness. Fellowship is everything. And it's going to cost you something to do it. The idea that it's free or that Jesus paid the cost so you don't have to does not work when the alarm goes off at 4 a.m. He rose from the dead, but without sacrifice, you will not get out of bed. It is sacrifice that we express love to each other. You know, to be honest, nobody wants to clean their house every night of the week. You want to set it and you want to forget it. You, you want to get things right and they stay right, but they don't. Your heart won't stay right. Your house won't stay right. Nothing will stay right. The way to get things right is through sacrifice that leads you into deeper fellowship. You need to decide what your clean house costs you. 
You need to decide what your extra hours of rest cost you, what your isolation is costing you. You build walls between you and your neighbor. You might build ceilings between you and God. We must be in fellowship with each other. And it's going to come through joint sacrifice. This ministry was not built on the generosity of a few people in here. It's built on the mutual sacrifice of every man, woman, and child in here. There are no great superstars in this room. There are ordinary men that are called to do extraordinary things. And we begin to believe it when we look up and see Mario doing it. When we look up and see Brent doing it. When we look up and see Steve doing it. When we see our brothers, it reminds us, don't you leave the ice. Oh man, it's everything. Don't leave us with 39. We need you. How often have you ever heard me preach a message about retention? I tell you all of the time, if you don't want to be serious about the Lord, get out. We could use your seat. There's a sign hanging in my office that says, Of course I was preaching to you. To whom should I have been preaching? I've never been considered a gentle person. But I also will not leave the ice or let go of your hand. Church, we need each other. Let people call it cultish. Let them call it weird. We live in a society where everybody is free-floating, free-spirited. They're free of everything except sin and the affirmation of God. Let's look at 2 Corinthians 13 and verse 14. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. What did it cost Jesus for you to have fellowship with His Holy Spirit? Man, for you to get filled with the Spirit cost Him His life in a gory, bloody ordeal in front of all of His friends and family, in front of His whole nation. You know, to have fellowship with the Spirit of His holiness... We must be anything but selfish. You can't very well be filled with the Spirit of Jesus and be acting selfishly. The Spirit and the flesh, they oppose each other in that way. They're contrary to each other in that way. And we must put to death what belongs to our earthly and sinful nature. And we must live according to the Spirit. This is how you find life. If you don't give up, you will reap a harvest and it's time. God is calling us into sacrificial fellowship. We're excelling in it in many ways. And yet, it's largely based on the generosity of a few. And I would love for it to be based on the mutual sacrifice of every family in this church. To have fellowship with His Holy Spirit, we're going to have to set our hearts on being like Jesus. Do you want to be like Jesus? Yes. One of the best ways to be like Jesus is to sacrificially love people. You don't have to wait for them to get right. You don't have to wait for them to agree with you. You can rescue them while they're still powerless. It's sacrificial. If you do what you like and you avoid everything you dislike, there's a word for that. It's immature. If you want to mature, it comes through sacrificial fellowship. Look at Philippians 3 and verse 10 with me. 
I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, so that somehow to attain to the resurrection of the dead, to know the power of the resurrection, we must learn to sacrifice like Christ. How much me time do you see him getting in the scripture? How many times did he send people away? Because, you know, he's just a little spent. He's poured out his life for others. And he brought us into fellowship with his father and each other. To share in real fellowship, we must share in his suffering on behalf of other people. You know, this is one of the things that has caused our church to fall in love with missions. When you ride on a plane for 27 hours and then a bus and then a train and then you walk through a jungle and you finally get to a place, they know you love them. Why else would you come? They know it. But what if the person sitting on the other side of the church needs to know that you love them and value them? What if the best way to show it is that you didn't sleep in on the day that you wanted to? That you didn't value your clean living room so much that they're not seated in it. See, this is how we practically walk. There's, there's orthodoxy. Orthodoxy is a right belief, but there's orthopraxy. It's a right action. Can I tell you, people have creed, but not everybody is acting it out with their deeds. Which would you rather have, the creed or the deed? I'm going to tell you that if you act rightly, your beliefs will straighten out, period. How much more should we sacrifice for our own brothers and the resulting fellowship? You should be praying each day. What can I do to express your love, Lord, for you to show yourself holy through me to my friends? What can I do, mighty God, to be your hands and feet to the body of Christ first and then to the rest of the world? We cannot shrink away from that which is difficult. We have to embrace it. Is fear getting in your way? When I talk of sacrifice, do you think that this is macho bravado and something for guys? Many of you have seen me hop out of a car and face people with machine guns. How many of you have been to Mexico and seen that firsthand? It's not macho bravado. You need to understand what it is that causes that. Pastor Slaughter put it so eloquently today. That guy is awesome. He said, fear is an emotion that is held in reserve for the Lord and the Lord alone. Like a virgin waiting for her husband. No one may have my fear freely given except the Lord to whom my fear is reserved. Have you been giving away your chastity? Have you been giving away your fear? Your fear is for God and God only. He's the only one that you should fear. Are you scared that if you give, you won't get? Are you scared that if you reach out, they won't reach back? Are you prostituting your emotions? Because your fear, like a godly young woman waiting for a husband, should be reserved for what the Lord thinks and only what the Lord thinks. You're not allowed to fear consequence. You're not allowed to fear the loss of life. You're not allowed to fear other things. That is the behavior of a paid woman. And that's not who we are. 
We are saving the beauty, the purity of our fear emotion to be expressed only in reverence to the Lord. I'm not going to give it to a boss over my income. I'm not going to give it to the devil over his thoughts planted in my mind. I'm going to reserve it for the Lord and the Lord alone. Turn with me to John 14. I want to talk to you as we get ready to close about Philip the Apostle. Am I boring you? Are you, are, is there anybody here that will give me five or ten minutes? It's five, ten, fifteen, twenty, twenty-five. Okay, we, we'll be good. We'll be able to finish this then. In John 14, in verse 8... I want to remind you of who Philip the Apostle is. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father. That will be enough for us. Man, how'd you like that recorded about you? That's right up there with Thomas saying, unless I touch, you know. I mean, of course, Thomas is the first one to call Jesus both Lord and God. So maybe we ought to cut these guys some slack. Aren't you glad your every word's not recorded? (laughs) It is. Sorry, that wasn't nice of me. Forgive me. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip, even after I've been among you such a long time? Do you hear it? Is anybody astute enough to pick up on it? Jesus expected Philip to understand him because they were fellowshipping together for a long time. Jesus had been sacrificing, following the will of the Father constantly, never choosing his own will, only doing what God had said, and he expected Philip to see God in him because of it. Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? The words I say to you are not just my own. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing His work. When you sacrifice to be in fellowship with others, they will see the work of your Holy Father in you. Are you disappointed that you don't think people are giving you a fair shake? It was just a miscommunication. Or they see something besides the Father at work in you. And it's disturbing. When you sacrifice to fellowship with your brothers and sisters, they will see God at work in you. They will even help you see you rightly. And you might need to be encouraged that the Father is at work in you, or you might need to be helped because something else is at work in you. See, I didn't mention it with fear, but there's another reason people don't fellowship. They don't really want you to see them. Because they know what's lurking in there. And they've decided not to kill it. They've decided to conceal it. If you want to be healed, you will have to sacrifice. Put yourself in fellowship so that you can be healed. You cannot go off somewhere alone and get it right. Do you know the proof of that was the Garden of Eden? They were alone. They didn't get it right. There is a reason that you are surrounded by a nation of priests. They will help you get it right. You need your brothers. Your brothers need you. The point of being filled with the Spirit was His Spirit flowing out of you. 
Have you failed after such a long time of fellowshipping with Jesus to understand Him? Are the sacrifices asked of you for fellowship just too great? Maybe you just need more of the Father doing His work in you. And then you rejoice in sacrifice. Do you know how Philip went to be with the Lord? Oh my. It also happened in Turkey. Everything in the Bible that didn't happen in Israel happened in Turkey. Everything. You don't believe me? Ask the Turkey team. They will tell you all about it. We've been discovering it for years. You literally can't put your foot anywhere in Anatolia and not be stepping on something that is biblical. Fox's Book of Martyrs says, Philip was born in Bethsaida in Galilee and was the first called by the name of disciple. He labored diligently in Upper Asia and suffered martyrdom in Heropolis in Phrygia. Phrygia is southwest Turkey. Phrygia is the region where Laodicea is, Colossus is. Phrygia is, is the region where Heropolis is, obviously. He was scourged and thrown into prison and afterwards crucified. The year was A.D. 54. You know, Philip Schaff put that pretty succinctly. And when you read it like that, it just sounds like a fact. You know, like, like a certain number of people died in a bus crash and that doesn't touch you at all. But if you know them, then it's entirely different, isn't it? I want you to hear from a third century work that's attested to in quite a few languages, which would indicate maybe that it wasn't just the lie of one man, but, but a widespread testimony about Philip's actual death. It comes from an apocryphal work called The Acts of Philip. I'm not endorsing the apocrypha. I read it like I read the newspaper. Some of it's true, some of it's not, but it will give you an idea what we ought to be thinking about. The Acts of Philip the Apostle say clearly that not only did he die in Heropolis, but Heropolis is the place where the hot water springs came from that flowed into Laodicea. They mixed with the cold water springs that flowed from Coloss. The hot water and the cold water mixed at Laodicea and it became lukewarm. This is... What Jesus said he would spit out of his mouth. The nauseous mixture of somebody who was not really here or there, not really in or out, was kind of uh, nauseous to Jesus. Well, Philip gives his life in the place called Heropolis, which was quite symbolic of somebody who was hot on fire for Jesus. There was outside of the city a gate. And the gate said, all who walk under this pledge allegiance to the emperor. One day, Philip was walking with his family, and he can't walk through the gate. He'd walked through it other times, but that day, as he came to the gate, he just thought, I don't pledge allegiance to the emperor. This caused a real problem for the Roman proconsul who was very well aware of who Philip was. He was aware of who Philip was because Philip had healed his wife. I'm sure he liked that his wife was healed, but he did not like that Philip pledged allegiance to a king that was not in Rome. So they round up Philip, and in front of his family, they go to crucify him. But Philip wasn't alone because he valued fellowship. 
he was with Bartholomew. Bartholomew has no mention in the story. He, he didn't heal anybody. He didn't do anything. But you get the impression Philip couldn't have done anything he did without Bartholomew. They say, we're going to crucify you, Philip. And Bartholomew stepped up with him. Because there's a fellowship of suffering. And he was not about to watch his friend die alone. When they came with the crosses, Philip said, I am unworthy to die in the same manner as my Lord. If you must crucify me, then do it upside down. Bartholomew joined him in it at the gates of Heropolis. This drew a crowd because this was not the normal method of execution. Why are the crosses upside down? What did these guys do to deserve that? It's not unusual for people to kill Jews, but it was really unusual for them to kill Jews in this manner. And the thing is, is while they hung Philip upside down with nails in his feet and Bartholomew with nails in his feet and his hands, Philip was preaching. And while he was preaching, he was encouraging his wife and his children to remain true to the faith, to stay on the ice, so to speak. Not to be discouraged by his suffering. That soon he would be with Jesus. The crowd was so moved by what Philip said, they rushed the guards. And they were going to take Philip off of the cross. But there was only time before the guards recovered to get one person down. And Philip said, take Bartholomew. So they pulled Bartholomew off of the cross and whisked Philip's family away. While he gave his life to Jesus. Which really begs the question, which are you? Are you Philip or are you Bartholomew? Are you benefiting from fellowship? Are you sacrificing for fellowship? Which of those two men are you tonight? If there's a sacrifice to be paid, do you make sure that somebody else brought the drinks, brought the food, got their house dirty? Showed up to move? Or are you the one that is looking in every way with your dying breath to ease somebody else's suffering? It reminded me of something that Paul said. 2 Corinthians 4.10, he said, We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus. So that the life of Jesus may be revealed in our body. Do you get that? We always, how often? Always carry around in our body the death of Jesus. So that the life of Jesus may be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake. So that his life may be revealed in our mortal bodies. So then death is at work in us, but life in you. Now it's getting late. You're probably thinking of where you need to be next. Be so easy to miss this. We always carry around. Not I. We. Our body. Our body. We who. Our mortal body. Us. Every pronoun in the passage is plural. Do you know why? Because the kingdom is built on the mutual sacrifice of all. I asked you which man you were earlier. The answer is both. Somebody's given their life for you that you might live. 
And you must give your life to others so that they might live. Both Philip and Bartholomew are excellent examples. It's mutual sacrifice that brings the sweetest fellowship. I have one more story for you. Peyton, you might make your way here. In the year 249, under a man named Decius, there was a proconsul also in Turkey. As I said, everything happened in Turkey. His name was Optimus. Makes it easy to remember. Optimus was a persecutor of the church, though, not a talking robot. He took a man named Nicomachus and he brought him up on charges for being a Christian. Nicomachus being brought before the proconsul Optimus as a Christian was ordered to sacrifice to the pagan idols. Nicomachus replied, I cannot pay that respect to devils, which is only due the Almighty. Man, that's nice, isn't it? It's pithy. I hope to be so articulate in the moment that I'm being attacked. This speech so much enraged the proconsul Optimus that Nicomachus was put on a rack. After enduring the torments for a time, Nicomachus recanted. He fell into the greatest of agonies and dropped down to the ground. And then, after recanting, he died. It's so easy to say that you'll sacrifice for the Lord. If you are not full of the Spirit more than you are full of your selfishness, there is no way that you will sacrifice for the Lord. A young woman named Denisa, which touches my heart because we met a woman named Denise in this region. She's a proto-believer. This means she's about to be a believer. She just doesn't know it yet. Denisa, a young woman of only 16 years of age, 16 years old. Libby, how old are you? Come here, Libby. Come stand with me for a minute. When I read you a story, it's easy to forget that it's a real person. I've been with Libby on the mission field. I've seen her cast out devils. I've seen her stand up to false Christians. We both stood and proclaimed the truth while we saw a modern-day Pentecost crowd of many, many people filled with the Holy Ghost without anyone praying for them or laying their hands on them, just speaking in other tongues. I watched Libby chase a woman that was crawling and barking like a dog and cast a demon out. Denisa probably looked very much like Libby. Beautiful. Olive-complected. Brown hair. Denisa, a young woman of only 16 years of age, who beheld this terrible judgment, suddenly exclaimed, Oh, unhappy wretch! Why would you buy a moment's ease at the expense of a miserable eternity? Optimus hearing her, called to her, and Denisa, avowing herself to be a Christian, was beheaded by his very order in the same spot that the other man recanted. Which would you want to share eternity with? Nicomachus? 
or Olivia. Church, fellowship is based on the sacrifices of Christ. If you want to experience the true fellowship of the Spirit, it only comes one way. You're going to have to figure out how to die to your desires and live to His. Just like Libby has. Just like Denisa has. Just like thousands of Christians in every century before us have been since Jesus first demonstrated it. Because we live in America in a different time with so many comforts, so many eases, and so much selfishness. Don't think for a moment that you can walk off of the ice and share eternity with saints like this one. Would you stand to your feet?